shots on the beat, boy. Accent made this. Welcome back to the Value Adds Value podcast with Kyle Krieger and Wilkie Law, where we're sharing inspiring stories of educators just like yourself, helping you to develop your craft and sharpen your tools to become the teacher your students deserve. This is the Value Adds Value podcast. Let's jump into this next episode. What's going on, everybody? It's Kyle here. Uh, just wanted to give you a little lead into this podcast episode as it's a little bit um, different than our normal ones. It wasn't formatted. We were talking uh, one morning earlier this week and we started talking about ego and we hit the record button on on it and, and this is what came out and just talking about the dangers of having an ego as an educator. So we hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to the podcast, share it, and we hope you enjoy this episode of the Value Adds Value podcast. Start start again with the ego-driven teacher, at least that way we have this reported if we need it. Yeah, so like the to, to, to do a real study, to look into the teachers who are driven by their ego, um, I mean, we know everybody has an ego. I mean, we we it's part of who we are, you know, even going as far back as the id and the ego, they talk about those two different, the polarity of the human existence, but as teachers, we cannot be ego-driven. Well, the word driven is the one that makes it problematic. Mm. Because if you don't, I mean, yeah, I have an ego, and my ego, my ego gets bruised. And when I was a young teacher, when my ego got bruised, I ramped it up. Because my ego was such a driving force. Mm. But now, you know, and I think at my story is probably one that's very common. Like, my ego is especially potent when I don't feel good about myself. I don't get ego when I'm doing really good. I get ego when I'm not doing good. Mm, As a compensation tool. Yeah, which is an you know, it's kind of an oxymoron. You would think that the more the more successful I am, the more ego I would have. Mm-hmm. And it may have seemed that way growing up, but or like in my twenties, but Looking back, I can tell it's like you said. It's a defense mechanism. It's a, it's a, a way to avoid the the mucky feelings. You're having to live up to the excuse of why you're not doing what you're supposed to do, and that's frustrating. So you create this persona. This excuse, this constant lie, this constant fallacy, and you live in that phallic state. So you have to put your defensive up for anybody who's going to try to help you see or help you humble yourself. You know, and a great example of this guy, this is so funny because I had a, I have a kid in my class who he constantly challenges everyone's authority. He, that's what he wants to do. <clears throat> and yesterday, 
he got a really good real world experience and life lesson of of why you shouldn't do that when he was struggling and I said, hey, he's new. I said, look, let me give you a calculator to kind of help you with these numbers. I say, when you need it, use it. If you don't, don't. I say, just see, I say, but have it there so you don't get frustrated. And he was like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So he gets the calculator, he starts working. But then he, he his ego kicks in and then he starts getting cocky because he's getting them right. And he starts bragging about the fact that he's using the calculator. So the co-teach goes to try to take it, you know, to take it from him because he's not supposed to have it. But I gave it to him. And so he then he gets even more cocky and says, Mr. Law gave me the calculator. You can't take it from me. And when I heard him say that, I was like, yeah, I did give you the calculator. I say, but what was our what was our conversation about it? I don't know. I said, no, 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 no. Now this is, I walked over to his group. I said, no, 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 no. Talk to me. What was our conversation? That if I needed, use it. And if I didn't, didn't. I said, so tell me this. Why are you bragging to the entire class? Because I gave you something that would help you be successful. Instead of you just sitting down and being successful doing what you're supposed to do. The entire class got hushed quiet and he turned around and looked at him and he said, you're right, you're right, you're right. Can I still use the calculator? I say, sit down and take care of business. And, and it was so crazy that it's so easy for a teacher. And, and you know, I'm working with my co-teacher on that. that um, He's younger, you know, so I I think his almost kind of laissez-faire appearance when we, when he, like, he's kind of like, I think that's a, a mask because he's kind of, he hasn't yet learned how to uh, um, <clears throat> articulate without kind of going off. So he withdraws. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, it appears like he's he's passive, but I think it's really just a lot of bottled up uh, bottled up aggression that he just doesn't know how to appropriate. I tried to tell him, let's start doing the challenge with me that I'm doing with my brother to kind of get his mind into the right place. I talked to him about box breathing, um, <clears throat> and um. Yeah, you know, just trying to get him in a, in a, in a good headspace, and it, it's a slow process, but it's it's slowly going. I think we're we're finally gaining to that point to where we can have those critical conversations, and I don't I don't feel he gets offended when when I say it because I didn't at first. We would just kind of talk about it, and I never would kind of throw my opinion out because again, you got to give people the room and a space to to do them, so you can learn who they are. You know, if I, if you go in automatically correcting every single thing, you'll never learn who somebody is. You know, when I first started learning to play the piano, my mom and them wanted to tell me, no, you got to do your fingers like this. You got to do your fingers like that. We'll get you lessons. And my uncle was like, I sat here and listened to this boy play. Here comes the bride. After we left the wedding, 
Don't teach him how to play. Let him play. And along the way, as I started learning different things, <clears throat> I would go share it with him, sit down and play the piano, and he would give me tips. And he was like, you know, if you really, if you, if you did your fingering like this, it opens you up to be able to do this. And he would do something. And I'm like, oh. And then that little tip, I would start incorporating that little tip. But it was never like, don't do this, don't do that. And as teachers, we get so caught up in the don't do's. You know, that's why I don't have no rules, rules in my room that say do not. Do not. Do not talk while others are talking. No. Let's, that's how we say respect. Make sure we respect everybody's voice. Make sure we respect everybody's space and, and, and who they are and their thing. <clears throat> and I think that, um, yeah, man, that, that, that ego is, is, is just as bad as it is in, I mean, I think it's a good, you need a little bit of ego. <clears throat> yeah. You gotta have that, 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 that gives you, that's really where you get your swag from for these kids terminology. <clears throat> because, but it can't be a false swag, like you were saying, like that. I'm frustrated because I know I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not happy, but I'm just doing this because sometimes we just don't feel like doing right. I mean, <clears throat> we know what to do, we just don't do it. Well, and I can think back to my example of myself. I think a lot of mine was the expectation I was not living up to was the teacher I thought I should be, you know, and I wasn't focused at that time on being the teacher who I am being, I was focused on what I thought I should be, not truly who I am and what, what I should be as a person based on my experience. And I think when you, but like you said, it's another one of those, like it, I was just playing off an excuse for not living up to the expectation. And to me, it felt like I wasn't living up to the expectation, but not only that, my expectations were totally off base. And I think it's different now. I mean, it's been 10 going on 11 years since I had my first job. And I think, it feels like more and more kids are being, or new teachers are being taught and, you know, authenticity is, is more relevant. But I mean, for me, like ego <clears throat> can be dangerous, especially when you're trying to live up to someone else's expectation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about other people's expectation is that it can shift and you not know it. How often do we do that though as teachers? How often do we shift our expectations and our kids don't know it? I can, I can think back to a lot of times that I did exactly that. I'm trying to see. I don't... <clears throat> Yeah, I, I can. I can't think of a, a, an exact moment that I've done that. Honestly, like, 
because I, I've always been a a classroom is a living, breathing entity. Yeah. And not a not a rigid, sterile environment that you can control all the variables. You know, you don't have your control subjects and your test subjects over here. Your control, your test, your placebo effect, all of that's mixed up all together. You don't know which there's, is there's so <laughs> there's so many there's too many variables to live life that way. <laughs> or to sorry, to to live life and teach in a classroom that way. Right, without the proper training on those expectations. Without the proper training that the idea of I'm gonna go here. The idea of sending a child to a kid, a teacher's classroom, without giving that teacher a heads up on who they're receiving and information about that child, is a dangerous formula for for both of those. Um, and I, I'm just thinking now how I've gotten over the past three weeks, one, two, three, four, five new kids, three of them from other teachers on my team, two of them brand new to the district. And prior to that kid coming to my class, I didn't even know that kid was coming to my class. So you get a kid, you're not expecting them, you don't know anything about them. And you're forced to instantaneously continue teaching your class, get to know this new kid, and take him from where he is, which you'd have no clue, (laughs) to where your kids are right now. And it is, man, I don't care what anybody says until the United States of America as an entity places value on its teaching force. We will continue to be a first world country living in third world, a third world mindset. That's what shifted third world countries to first world countries. When you look at Singapore, they go from living in grass huts. Check this out. Living in grass huts, mostly aggregate community, to being one of the dominant leading city centers. You go to Singapore, you think you're in downtown Tokyo, Japan. For sure in Asia. You know what I'm saying? Right now. So when you look at it and say they did that in within one generation and what shifted? How they looked at teachers and how they valued education. <clears throat> and they brought together the tech giant, the rice farmer, the, the textile worker, the politician. They brought all these people together and say, what's best for us to push us to where we need to, where we can still do this, we can do this, we can do that, we can do that. And all of them agreed, we start with education. 
And so they created one education system <clears throat> and pushed that out to every single, whether, I don't care if you're a rice farmer or you're a tech giant, you're getting an education. You're doing education like that. Same thing China's doing right now. They're like us, they struggle because they're big. You know, they're not as racially diverse as we are, but socially, they're very diverse because you got the, the low, 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 you know, Chinese, you know, the, the, the rule. You got your super duper Shanghai's. So we got to put the value on, on the main thing because even when I share with one of my teachers, my students who says she wants to be a teacher, and I felt happy. And the coach was like, uh, no, nah, I don't be a teacher. And I was like, no, be a teacher. I said, think about it. As a teacher, you get to control what the rest of the 99% of the world does. You get to not really control it, but you have to get to have an impact on it. The future world, your, your impact is still there. There's a footprint in the sand where you've stepped there already you're not there yet just because you teach and she looked at me and she was like wow that's how I approach it <clears throat> you know and somebody's going to teach their kid a principle that I've taught them in class because I know Nevada gets so many of the principles that I learned from my past teachers and that's where, that's where we have to hang our hat as citizens, that every single kid on this planet deserves to have a quality education based off of quality principles, not just academic success, based on quality life principles. Let's get to know each other. Let's grow each other so you can find faster what it is that you want to do. Everybody doesn't want to be a doctor. Everybody doesn't want to be a lawyer. Everybody doesn't want to be an actress. But when you know those kids want to do that, let's set them up for success and put them in a space to where they can do that and make that happen. And you can't do that when you got 42 kids in a classroom. When you're facing a 300,000 teacher supply shortage in the coming years. In one of the richest countries in the world, we have a teacher shortage? Come on, man. One of the richest countries in the world has a teacher shortage. Want to teach? Got a degree? <laughs> man, it is... <clears throat> man, it, it, like I say, it, as the more and more, more research I do, it... it it reaffirms to me why we're doing what we're doing. Because we have to keep great teachers. We have to develop great teachers. And, and, and we got to set up the force to where kids want to become great teachers. I promise you, if you give every... I, I, I walked over to our eighth grade side. And our eighth grade classrooms or about... 18 to 20 kids. You, 
you come over here to our our um sixth grade classrooms. We have several teachers with forty two kids in one room. How can one person effectively build a relationship in 90 minutes with 42 different kids. You can't expect that. But that's the value you put on teaching. Just go sit down and, and keep the kids busy and let them pass, help them pass this test. But don't teach to the test. But they better pass the test. Come on, man. Education is more than that. It's more than a standardized test. You know, think about this. Watching the, the nature, the um, um, Discovery Channel, they were talking about the cheetahs and how there was a, a pack of a mother with her three cubs. And there's no standardized test, right, in, in learning. There should not be. There, there's just a, an, an, a demonstration of the mastery of the skill that I just taught you. Show me how you know it. The mom would take the kids out, make sure they sit down. They would watch her hunt. She would grab something little that she's not really going to eat. Keep it alive. Put it in their mouth. Bring it over to them. And they would start playing with it. If it started running away, she would go chase it down, grab it, bring it back to them. Until they started doing it themselves. And then they made it a game to where they would let it go and then all of them would run after it to try to see who would get it. And then one of them bit it and it died and it didn't move anymore. And they lost interest and then they ate it. And they said she does this several times because she has to show them how to hunt. So then now when they go, she goes out on a hunt and she goes and gets a big antelope and she brings it back and they eat it. They're watching this satisfaction. Okay. So when they see the antelope, they start automatically doing what she's doing because one day she's just going to walk away from them because they're solitary animals. She's literally just going to walk away, trusting that I've taught you everything that you need to know. Now it's up to you. There's no standardized test in that. There's none. Do I think we should assess kids' learning? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you should do your yearly assessments where the kids show what they know. But I also think you should do a yearly project where the kids combine their thinking and their learning. You know, I think that there has to be something bigger than what that is. And especially for those kids who are on a track to say, I'm going to, I already know I want to, my, my sister, my baby sister knew from the time she was born, I want to be a nurse. Like, I never heard her say she wanted to do anything else her whole life. And that's me being conscious. Since she could move and talk and walk, she was putting Band-Aids on baby dolls and wrapping Barbie's arms up. And she wanted to be a nurse. And guess what she does right now, 40 years later? She's a nurse. <laughs> you know, I heard so, that. So for kids like that, it's like, give them the opportunity and the space to do it. Give them the space to do it, man. And 
yeah. Yeah, it's just, um, yeah. Makes me scratch my head sometimes when I think about where the U.S. is as far as teaching. Like, we're the richest country on the planet. Why can't the U.S. government subsidize subsidize and say all teachers are going to get paid this much? And we're willing to to match whatever you're putting in with this to give them what they need. How many teachers wouldn't be tired for having to work two and three jobs? You know, one of the ladies that just started our school, she's from um, from, uh, El Paso. And um, she say um, she left El Paso because she was having to work, teach, and then go work in the store because she was barely making $30,000 a year, $32,000 a year. in 2020, or 2019, 32,000 a year. You know, so when you think about the fact that our government does not care, they're, they're willing to accept the fact that some people are gonna get a better education than others. Some of our younger citizens are not going to be have the access to quality education, and others will. Some of our young citizens are are not going to get the teacher they deserve because that teacher is going to go to a different market because they can't sustain the life where they are. You know what I mean? So if you set a national teaching standard, every teacher on this in in within this continental area has to earn this amount and this is our pledge to make sure that it happens well i just did a quick i mean if every teacher made a hundred thousand dollars a year that'd be 300 billion a year subsidized between states and the federal government Like in our district, that would be the government supporting, yeah. But I mean, <clears throat> and even with that, you know, talking about policy-wise, you could do it based on, let's just say you pulled $300 billion and you said, this is what we're going to pay teachers. You could pay it based on, you know, cost of living. Because $100,000 to somebody in Cumberland is way different than $100,000 to somebody in NYC or in LA mm-hmm. or, you know, those places. But the thing about it is, if that was a number, think about it. It would, in every one of those places you named, would really make a very, I won't say stress-free but financially stress-less environment for teachers. You know what I mean? I mean like, and why... You, go ahead. I was going to say, but why shouldn't someone in a small town still make that? 
Right. And then you're giving people the choice to say, well, if you want to live in New York, you got to pay what it costs to live in New York. If you want all of that stuff, go ahead. Like, I mean, if we were, if we were starting over scot-free with no restrictions, I would, I would probably want to be back in Houston or be in the hill country, or I'd want to be outside Nashville. I would think about like these places where, Taxes are low and pay is high. And think about this. Then what that does is it makes teaching attractive anywhere. It makes teaching attractive anywhere, just like being a doctor. People don't care where you go as a doctor because you know there's a minimum standard. Even if I start my own practice in a small town, if I'm one of the few doctors there, I can guarantee myself a salary that's going to be close to $100,000. You can't tell me a dentist is more important than a teacher. You couldn't have a dentist without a teacher. That's that's, that's my argument. Put me in front of a put me in front of a board. Guess what? You all wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a teacher. So how dare us not put the value on our cash crop? Our most valuable asset. So that that's where my mind is going right now. And when I was as I'm doing all this research for um for this class, it's making me really kind of rethink a lot of stuff, but also um find a voice you know because I thought about you know when Jed Jed and all those were um, were uh, out were were, were, um, protesting for for teacher pay and um, the you know the young lady we had on from California yeah um, yeah uh, you know it's like when you think about there are people right now who we know are good teachers who love the craft, but who also struggle because of, you know, the one lady we met on the cruise who, you know, she works two jobs. You know, the cruise was like a break from everything for her. And I was like, You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to have a summer job. No. Now, if people want to have a summer job, go for it. Like, for it. I, I know there are people like that love the difference. You know, going out and doing manual labor or waiting mm-hmm. tables or you know, the part of me wants to go somewhere to a golf course and work in the starters tent or be a ranger or you know, do whatever. But you know, that's, and, and I wonder, and I know it would never happen because there's no way constitutionally that states would give up the right to run their own education. Yes, right? they would. I, I think about this. The only way it would happen, you would have to get teachers in each one of those states to come together. And this is a process. This is not something that's going to happen tomorrow. 
this is like years and years of, of planning has to go. You grab teachers from every single state. You bring them together on a common mission to say, look, not only are we going to try to, because again, it is up to the states roughly, but again, if each teaching, if the teaching force in each state, rural and populated, you bring all those people together, it could be something as simple as a once a year think tank, but everybody has jobs to do to focus on. You're giving this, this curriculum and say, look, see, Common Core had a good idea. It's a great idea. It's kind of like Marxism, you know, great idea in theory, but the execution is just horrible. You know what I mean? I, communism to me as a whole was not, when people got involved, it, get, it gets warped. And I guess you can't have it without people, so it's kind of double-edged sword. But the idea behind it is not bad, just like with Common Core. Common Core, you can actually see where they were trying, but they weren't talking to the right people. Because to have a mutually accepted curriculum throughout all states, you have to bring people from all states together. That's what all these other countries are doing. They're bringing representatives from each one of these places that are going back over time doing this, not trying to make these these uh, these quick, you say what? Yeah, like snap decisions. Right. And just saying, you know, oh, we're going to do this. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to call it this. No. Your planning has to be so intact that you just kind of go on. You 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 have to move from where you are to the future and what you want. Again, like we said in New Mexico, what's the end game? The end game should be that every every single person should have the same base to go from. Every adult should have had the exact same base that they're spring polling from regardless of your socioeconomical status, regardless of where you decided to live, regardless of where you were forced to live, um, you have, as a citizen, you have that opportunity to make those choices. And, man, it, I guarantee you we would eliminate that. We could do the, to teach, get rid of the teacher shortage. We can make teaching more desirable. It should be desirable. You know, um, if you see someone doing something that that you don't know what you want to do, but you you see a great kindergarten teacher, you see a great first grade teacher, your second grade teacher blows your mind, your third grade teacher dressed up as your first superhero, your favorite superhero, your fourth grade teacher helped you when you were having bad times, your fifth grade teacher stopped the bully, your sixth grade teacher, you know, did. So by the time you get to high school, you're like, man. I don't know where I'd be without these people. I want to become one of these people. I want to become one of these people. You're not going to stop the teacher shortage in five years or 10 years. It's a generational thing. It's a generational thing. But we could do it in a generation. We could do it in a generation. 
the entire the entire system can change in a generation. But it requires us having some critical conversations and we don't we don't want to own up to some of the things that that um we don't want to own up to the biggest issue in the United States right now. And that's the issue of, of, of race. Like we don't want to have that conversation. We don't want to say, we want to say, you can't keep using that as an excuse, you know, just because your ancestors were slaves doesn't mean that that, just, but it's the mindset that slavery created within the system that has perpetuated a, a, a constantly looking up from the bottom for so many of our minorities. And to see how the differences between even rural white graduates and minority graduates, and I'll say minority because I'm putting Latinos, Latinas, Latinos in because they're almost in the same boat. Like they, they're kind of neck and neck. And so it's just crazy to think about it. You know, I was joking with one of the teachers. I say, yesterday was National Wear Red Day, right? Now, uh, so I put red on. I think I look good in red. I like wearing red. You do. But when I, the looks that I got, because I had on my red, you know, um, long sleeve, like, um, Union shirt and my red U of H hat, and I'm walking into Starbucks, and people who would normally smile and say good morning to me didn't. They didn't. And I said, It's because what you see in me you don't see me like you you see me when i come in here when i'm in my bow tie and you feel like oh yeah this is a nice guy i can be bright and airy with versus here's a guy coming in here he looks like a thug that instant stereotype and it, it was just interesting, you know, and she's like, you're going to do, you, you should do a social experiment. I say, I am. I really want to. I wish I could give me like a little hidden camera to put on me to catch the reactions because it's really, it's really interesting, man. It's really interesting. You know, I, I've never been one, you know, I've always been the one to be the different guy. You know, I was a black guy who skateboarded, you know, um, you know, in my neighborhood, we got into, you know, we were the kids that were building the U-ramps because we saw people building U-ramps in their backyards with, with the skateboards and their bikes, you know, riding from one end, one side of the street, across the street, through one person's backyard, around the corner, and you got to hit the U-ramp. Like, I remember doing crazy, nuts of stuff like that. We were different. Um, and so I've never been one to really fit a stereotype, even though I grew up in the hood, even though I had a broken home, 
the decisions I made were were decisions I made on my own because it wasn't the same scenario for, for my brothers and my sisters. We were all getting the same growth, you know, same teaching. You know, um, but I've never been one to fit that stereotype. I've always tried to step out and do things, even though you do your wrong, you do your bad stuff. But it's like, I can't, I can't really describe it. I don't even know where I was going with that story. But so I was scratching. I don't know why I just got lost. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I don't even know where I was going with this. Or what were we talking about? We started talking about ego, but then we started talking about teaching and teaching shortage and changing the system. And no, people stereotyping. That's what we were talking about. Oh, yeah, about, yeah, yeah. Stereotyping. Yeah, yeah. And that, but again, if we want to double back to that, what would cause that would be your ego. Believing that what you already believe about a person or a group of people is what you know to be exactly true. That's correct. Hey guys, just a quick question. How can we help you become the teacher your students deserve? Please, please reach out to us. Follow us on social media at Value Adds Value. Go to our website, thelepproject.com, or send Wilkie or I an email and let us know what we can do to help you become the teacher you, your kids deserve. And if you don't mind, while you're at it, hit the subscribe button, share this podcast out, and help us reach more teachers to help them become the teacher their kids deserve. Now, back to the podcast.